0: You can turn in your Bible to John's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. And this will be our last week in the prologue or the overture uh, before moving into the story of Jesus proper. Um, and this, this paragraph, this last several verses in the prologue. It really focuses on on what is the revelation of the great mystery. So it's a mystery revealed, but it's the great mystery, and it's the revelation of this mystery, the great one of Christianity, that is, in Jesus Christ, God became man. God became man, and you get the one true God While remaining God, and we talked about this yesterday at the men's breakfast a little bit, it's hard for us to hold these things together, that he didn't actually give up his divinity in order to become a human being, but while remaining God, he took on a created nature and moved into the neighborhood, as some have put it. I think Eugene Peterson's uh, The Message translates when it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it says, uh, moved into the neighborhood. So... Richard Sibbs, was a Puritan, an English Puritan a couple hundred years ago, he says that the Incarnation which is what that is, God becoming flesh, God becoming a human being, in the person of Jesus Christ the Incarnation is a greater mystery than that of creation. We cannot too often meditate on these things. It is the life and soul of a Christian. It is the marrow of the gospel. It is the wonder of wonders. We need not wonder at anything after this. So, um, my rather simple aim this morning is to share the wonder of wonders with you. Um, awe, marvel, fascination. I mean, I may not be able to actually evoke these feelings in you, <laughs> um, but these are a perfectly appropriate response to the word of the gospel, the word made flesh, God come as a human being. Uh, If you wonder, if you wonder at the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in Christ, then the gospel will have found its application in your heart, and who knows where else it might go from there. So that's what we're after this morning. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll read the word. Father, help us send your Spirit to open our hearts to the sending of your Son into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a profound mystery, and it means everything, and you have done it, and you have revealed it, and so we want to sit and hear and see things that are really too wonderful for us in the gospel so that we can know you, so that we can have a relationship with you, so our lives can be changed and reflect Jesus Christ more, we pray in his name, amen. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John, uh, John the Baptist again. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O oh Christ. <clears throat> so, uh, my father, uh, when he was alive, used to say, uh, if I weren't an atheist, if I were a religious person, I'd be a Jew. Because that's good old straightforward religion. Right? And, then, um, and then actually recently I heard his mother, my grandmother, who's still alive, uh, say pretty much the same thing except she's a lapsed Catholic, right? I think for her, uh, Catholic being Catholic is part of her upbringing and identity in some, um, some way. She's not a practicing Catholic. She doesn't go to church, but she says, if I weren't Catholic, I'd be Jewish because that's pure religion. I think this is really strange that this seems to run in my family like this. <clears throat> it seems like they, uh, they shared a notion about what religion is. One being an atheist, one being a non-practicing Catholic, right? They shared a notion of what religion is, that it's essentially about righteous living, right? It's about law-keeping. It's about doing the right thing. <clears throat> and they assume, they have this basic assumption not just about religion in general, but Judaism in particular. I think this is very interesting. They assume that Judaism is primarily, the, es- the essence of it is uh, God's law. That it's rules for good living, sort of distilled and codified and made reasonably keepable. That's what Judaism is, it's, it's pure religion. It's a code, a set of rules for good living in God's sight, right? That understanding of religion has always been a popular one. And even though it doesn't actually describe Judaism, so many Jews have approached their religion that way that it's an easy mistake to make. And actually, um, a return to Judaism as such has always been tempting or attractive even to professing Christians. I think you see that in a lot of the letters of the, uh, to the early church where the tendency is, hey, can't we just live, live by the book and adopt that set of rules and, and live like the Jews and go back to that because it's kind of easier and it feels safer, right? It's always been an attracting, uh, attractive, uh, tempting proposition to return to that understanding of Judaism, at least. Uh, but, but Judaism as it's meant to be. I'm going somewhere with this that actually connects it to our text. Don't worry. Judaism, as it's meant to be, is actually Christianity, which is why Christians look to the Old Testament, the Jewish writings, as our Scriptures. It's the Holy Scriptures, right? It's the Christian Scriptures, the Old Testament. Uh, And I think there's a good parallel here. Maybe some of you have... uh, heard of this uh, this, the book or the movies, The Lord of the Rings, but uh, there's this scene in the second movie um, where Gandalf appears, and he was Gandalf the Grey, and then he went through his death and resurrection and sort of glorification process and came back as Gandalf the White. And it surprised his companions because when they first saw him and when they first heard his voice, they... This is familiar. This is bad news. Here's Saruman. Saruman the White was previously the great, wise wizard, the great and powerful and, and, um, and wise Saruman, and they mistook Gandalf for him, the bad guy, right? But Saruman had been, he had corrupted what it meant to be a wizard. He had corrupted his white robe and his staff, in a sense, by uh, becoming evil, Right, um, and so you know what that white robe and that staff—they needed to be done right. So Gandalf came, and, and he, uh, you know, when when his friends say, "We thought you were Saruman," he says, "I am Saruman, or rather, Saruman as he was meant to be." Right, and that's I think a good way for us to understand the difference, some of the difference between Old Testament Judaism and New Testament Christianity. New Testament Christianity is Old Testament Judaism as it was meant to be before it got so easily corrupted and distorted by the uh, practitioners of it. Before Jesus Christ, before Jesus Christ, when God was dealing with His people, and primarily that meant dealing with the the nation of Israel, Judaism and the the revelation through the Old Testament Scriptures, it was God's revelation of reality. It was his revelation of reality as it was meant to be preparatory for the full revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. So Old Testament Judaism was meant to be preparatory for this fuller revelation of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ, the main purpose of Judaism the main purpose of the Old Testament was to know God, to know God so that His people might have a relationship with Him, so that He would be their God, and they would be His people, and they would live with Him. That was the point of Old Testament religion, the, the uh, Jewish religion, and that's the same purpose as Christianity. That we discover that in the pages of the New Testament, we discover it in the pages of John's Gospel, the purpose of Christianity is to know God, to be properly related to him, right? and to live with him in this world and the next. Neither Judaism nor Christianity is primarily concerned with our behaviors. Neither one is primarily about or essentially about our righteousness or our keeping God's specific set of rules, keeping God's law. That's not the main point of Either Judaism or Christianity, right? Both of these um, assume that from the, the very beginning, because we both acknowledge Genesis chapter 1 through 3, from the very beginning humanity rebelled and we're not the kind of people who keep God's rules well. That's your starting point for Judaism as it's meant to be and Christianity. We're not the kind of people who keep God's rules well, and religion, as God reveals it, is going to have to take that into account. It's going to have to take that as its starting point, in, in a sense, right? So, before Jesus Christ, in Judaism, God revealed himself in a way that was perfectly consistent, perfectly consistent with how he would reveal himself in Christ. So, it's not one God in the Old Testament and then a new are slightly different or entirely different God in the New Testament, right? It's not two different gods. He's revealing himself in a way that's entirely consistent, but the Old Testament revelation and Judaism's knowledge of God was preparatory. It was preparatory, right? So, but the main point was always the same. The prayers and the desires of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament are the same. We want to know God We want to have our relationship restored and we want to live with him just to know God. Wouldn't it be great to know that you knew God when you're facing life, when you're facing all that life has in store for you, what you're going through right now, troubles in the home, troubles at work, uh, transitions in life kids going off to school, trying to find work, wouldn't it be great to know God through all of this, to actually know that the one who stands over it all, the one who stands behind it all, um, you actually have a relationship with that one? Think of the security. Think of the peace that you could have. That's what Judaism, as it's meant to be, and Christianity uh, are about, is to have… that's what our prayer and our deepest desire is to know God and have our relationship fixed and, and live with him in a way that enables us to face anything. This knowledge, if we're going to know God, this knowledge of God is not natural. It is not innate. It is not instinctive. We cannot reason or philosophize our way to knowing God as he really is because, again, one of those basic assumptions of both Judaism and Christianity, From the very beginning, we believed the lie about God, and ever since, we've been prone to believe wrongly. Our instinct is to believe wrongly. It is very difficult to believe rightly about God. If we're going to know him as he really is, in order to have a relationship with him and live with him, if we're going to know him, he has to make himself known, which he has done. He has done it over the course of history, First in his dealings with Israel in a preparatory way, then finally he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Right? So now, since Old Testament Judaism is not the fullest revelation of God, it is right and it is good, but it is preparatory. It's not the fullest revelation of God. It is often appropriately characterized by the law. A lot of times um, uh, when Jews uh, refer to their religion that, or refer to the scriptures. They refer to it as the law, right? Uh, and that's that's somewhat appropriate. Very generally, the law is when God says, "Do this," and it's His commands. It's His the imperative, right? Do this. The Ten Commandments, as given to Moses, are the highlight of this aspect of preparatory revelation. Right? The Ten Commandments are the highlight. They show us that God's law, more than just being concerned with our behaviors, doing the right thing, more than that, it's concerned with our hearts and our minds and our souls and our inner being and our connection to God and our relationship with Him and our relationship with one another. That's what the law shows us. But since we're prone to misunderstand God and his revelation, it's common to look at the law as given through Moses as a set of rules that if you want to know God is happy with you, you'll keep these rules. If you want to know that you have a relationship with God, you'll keep these rules. It's so easy for us to slip into that. Um, When really the law is given to show how your goodness is not what, make, what makes God love you. Uh, you can know, apart from your goodness or your badness, you can know God, you can have a relationship with him by his grace. That's what the law is meant to show us. That's what the Old Testament is meant to show us. Say, you don't do it right, but God is still moving towards you anyway to make himself known to you for a relationship with you. That's what the Old Testament is about. So in a sense, it's not because of anything lacking in the Old Testament, but because of a deep overriding tendency in our hearts to misunderstand God's revelation in the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is actually not quite sufficient to make God known for our life with Him. It's not not the fullest revelation. We need the full revelation of God in Christ and in the New Testament. If we're going to be able to see properly what God was actually doing in the Old Testament, even to see what Judaism was meant to be, we need to see it in light of the gospel. Now, that's a super long introduction, but it's setting you up for the reason why John draws some contrast in this passage. In our passage this morning, John is drawing contrast between the Mosaic religion and the Christian religion, right? One is um, characterized as the law, and the other one is characterized as grace and truth. It's not because the Old Testament is opposed to the New Testament. It's because it's it's not quite enough, and we've distorted it. It's not the way it's meant to be. They're not really at odds. Both are revelation of the same God, but one is preparatory in a not-quite-sufficient way, and the other is the fullness of the glorious self-revelation of God. And in fact, <clears throat> there are some good parallels between God's revelation to Moses and God's revelation through Jesus Christ. There's some, uh, I think what John is doing is <clears throat> tapping into this, <clears throat> this scene that is a very important scene in the Old Testament in Exodus 33 and 34. Uh, Moses is with God, and he's acting as a mediator, in a sense, between God and his people. He's taking God's word to his people. And he's bringing the, the prayers and the requests of the people to God. So Moses is the picture of Christ in this, in this uh, passage. But in Exodus 33, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And that's, that's at the heart. That's, at the desi- that's the desire of the people who want to know God. We ask, please show me your glory. Show me what you're really like in a way that I can actually trust so that I can believe it, so I can hold on to the essence of who you are. Show me your glory. Show me the substance. And uh, <clears throat> so that's his prayer. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, which is his person, it's who he is. And it's, uh, it's the word Yahweh, which appears, when if you're reading it in most English translations, it's Lord, the Lord, in, um, in all caps, right? Um, I'll proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So <clears throat> the greatest spiritual desire that we have that's reflected in Moses' request here is to know God, to be shown his glory, to know his essence, to know what it is, in a sense, that makes God tick. Right? To know who he really is, to understand him in order to, to trust him and know that he's good and true so we can have a relationship with him where we're no longer suspicious that, that really behind the scenes, he's not really for me, he's against me. Right? Uh, to no longer be suspicious that we don't actually know him. We, we want to know him. We want to see what's at his core. We want to know his glory. This is what Moses wanted. But there's some tension here because he would not be allowed to see God's face. God said, yeah, I'll tell you who I am. You can't see my face. It would destroy you. Because sinful people can't handle God's full glory because of our sinfulness. It's because of us that we can't look at God and live. Sin and rebellion and disbelief It disqualifies us, and it makes it impossible for us to know God as he is to see him without being crushed by his holiness. His holiness is too much for us as we are in our sinfulness, right? We are incapable of standing the full vision of God. We would be burned up by the consuming fire of who he is. It's all biblical language. So you might assume uh, that this implies that God is mean to bad people, right? He doesn't want them hanging around. He, he can't permit it, right? But that's not it. That's not quite it. Uh, actually, it's because God, not, he's not mean. It's because he's love. It's because he's actually love. He's true love, and it's because we are so fundamentally, diametrically, Antithetically opposed to true love, to the true God who is love, that his presence is too much for us to bear. So it's right. It is righteous. It is good for God to remain true to his nature, to be love, and not compromise his love in order to accommodate sinners who don't want love, who can't take it, who can't bear it, but for precisely the same reason, because God is love, and he won't compromise that? Because he is love, he finds a way to reveal himself, to make himself known, even to those who are completely opposed to him, to his true nature, opposed to himself, opposed to love. So, Instead of telling Moses no, when Moses says, please show me your glory, and we imagine what God should have said is, no, you can't handle it, I'm not going to do it. Uh, instead of saying no, he protected Moses from the full blast of his glory that he couldn't handle. He hid him in the cleft of the rock up on the mountain, he tucked him away in this little crack, put his hand over him, uh, figuratively, in some sense. Uh, sheltered him with his hand, and in grace and mercy, because he's the God who is love and won't compromise his love for people who would reject him, he revealed himself. He revealed himself, and in so doing, he revealed to Moses his glory. He showed who he really is, way deep down inside. Right, this is who he really is. He warns sinners about his love that they can't handle. And then in his love, he makes provision for sinners to know his love. He makes provision so that he can reveal himself to them. And this is what happened with Moses, Exodus 34, the next chapter. says that Yahweh, the Lord, descended in the cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. This is his personal name. Right? A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness could also be translated grace and truth. Grace and truth, the way that he revealed himself to Moses. In our passage, in John's gospel, John keys into this theme of God's self-revelation and his glory as the one who makes himself known to us in his love, sinners who have rejected his love. In Christ, in Jesus Christ, in the Word made flesh, we have seen God's glory. In one sense, um, rather than sheltering us, God let us have the full blast. You can see all of who God is when you look at Jesus Christ. He doesn't hold anything back. It's who he really is. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in Christ, people saw the glory of God. They saw it. And they lived. Not just they survived. But they began to live. Because they saw Jesus Christ, and they saw God, and they saw God's glory. Rather than being preparatory revelation, as with Moses rather than being incomplete, leading up to something, from Christ's fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came. Steadfast love and faithfulness. The revelation of God came through Jesus Christ because he is God. The law of God Given through Moses, was a word of warning largely. A word of warning, a word that called our rebellion what it was, a word that pointed out the reality of our miserable estate apart from God that we're all happy to be in denial about. <clears throat> but in Jesus Christ, we don't just have a, a picture of what's wrong with us, we have a picture of what's right with God. We have a word of grace and truth, a word that characterizes God Himself. God is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth, which we have clearly revealed in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the self-revelation of God. He's nothing less than that. He's the word made flesh. So rather than leave us in our sin, in our rebellion against God and his love, rather than leave us there, unable to see God and live, unable to fully know his love, out of relationship with him, apart from him, God entered into the world to give himself to us for our relationship so we could know him and live with him. In another sense, now, you know, in one sense, God didn't pull any punches and he let the full blast of his glory be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> in another sense, in Christ, God sheltered us from the destructive effects of his love. He sheltered us from the destructive effects of his love when Jesus died on the cross he died a, se- a death that sinners should die so that we wouldn't have to and that is uh, like with Moses being tucked away in the crevice in the rock and God sheltering him with his hand that's what God has done with us in Jesus Christ so that when we see God we can actually live with him because he's he's protected us from the devastating effects of his love In Jesus Christ, God is not a God who remains distant and aloof from his creation. God is not a God who holds himself back and says, "Ah, I don't want to be with you because you're bad people. God is not a God who abandons sinners to an existence apart from him, but he moves toward them, moves toward you, moves toward us in love. That's what kind of God you see in Jesus Christ. A God who moves toward us in love, who unites himself to his creation for the sake of people like us, rebels. John the Baptist put it this way in verse 15, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist was, uh, he was older than Jesus, right? He was conceived first and born first and <clears throat> he was in ministry before Jesus he was a public figure before Jesus and so he says he who comes after me when he's talking about Jesus Christ the human being but he's talking about the preexistence of Jesus as the son of god he was before me god the son has always been fully God before all things. But the fantastic message of the gospel is that this preexistent one at a certain point in time and in space became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't give up his divinity. He took on a created human nature and added it to himself so that in one person, he's both fully divine and fully human, and that will never change. He became a human being, and he pitched his tent among us. He made his dwelling place among us. He moved into our neighborhood. So God came to be with us as one of us. He came to be with us as one of us. And because the world has seen Jesus, the original disciples saw him immediately, and we see him as we uh, look at him through their word. We have seen the glory of God in all of its fullness in one sense. There is no discrepancy between Jesus Christ and the God whom he reveals to us. There's no discrepancy there because Jesus Christ is God. And John Donne was a great English poet in the late 1500s, early 1600s. He says about this, "'Twas much That man was made like God before, but that God should be made like man much more. It was a big deal when we were made in God's image. It's a much bigger deal when God came and took on our flesh and became a human being. It's a big deal. Uh, Let me read a little bit from Philippians chapter 2 where Paul talks about, I think, what John is on about here. He says that Jesus… Being in the form of God, and that's, um, that's just a way of saying he's, he is God. Uh, being in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be clutched dearly, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In a sense, that's kind of an Old Testament way of saying Jesus Christ is God. This man is God to the glory of God the Father. So God the Father is glorified when we treat Jesus as God. When we recognize God in Jesus and honor him for who he is, it is not out of character for God to do what he did in taking on human flesh, becoming a human being, coming into the world as Jesus Christ. It is not out of character for him to be humble it's completely consistent with his character. It actually shows who he is, what kind of God he is like to do this, to come into the world in the person of his son as Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus put his divine character on hold at the incarnation to do something for a little while, you know, um, as if, you know, he's, the things that God truly does are still hidden back there in eternity, and, and this is just for show. It's not that. This is what the true God does. He comes humbly to the earth. Humbly. He submits himself. He obeys his Father. He suffers. He loves. And he dies for the sake of love. Loving people like us. That's what God is really like. God the Father looked upon his Son saw how well he reflected his love and he raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place so that all would know that Jesus Christ is the perfect explanation of what God is really like. He's the perfect explanation of exactly what God is like. It says in our passage, no one has ever seen God. I think this is probably with reference to God the Father. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Um, Jesus says this later in John's Gospel, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus Christ, the God-man, is at the Father's side right now because he did well his work of revealing God to us and because he did well his work of restoring our humanity to relationship with God. He fixed what was broken in our relationship with God. He revealed God to us in a way that we can know him and have things be made right and live with him, right? So Jesus Christ, the God-man, is at the Father's right side because God was pleased to welcome him home to heaven as the great mediator the true God and the true man. Uh, Thomas Torrance says this about the Incarnation. We cannot compare the fact of Christ with other facts, nor can we deduce the fact of Christ from our knowledge of other facts. It is a new and unique fact without analogy anywhere in human experience or knowledge. Here is an act of pure grace, the stupendous and absolutely free act of God Almighty And it carries with it the irresistible inference that what God has done here for us, we cannot do for ourselves. In the incarnation, which is entirely unique, and you can't wrap your mind around it. You can't reason your way to it. um, It's done because we can't save ourselves. We can't grope our way and reason and philosophize our way to a knowledge of God that will save us and restore our relationship with him. This is far better than the scheme of religion that says, you can be assured that you know God if you obey, if you keep his rules. This is far better. This is what Judaism was meant to be as it pointed forward to Christ. This is what Christianity is about after the fact of Christ. You see this in Jesus Christ. God is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in grace and truth, and you can know Him, who He really is, His glory. You can know His glory as you look to Jesus in faith. So put your faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would do the work that only you can do in holding Christ in front of us, And holding our hearts in front of Christ, and reconnecting us relationally, and making us willing and even eager to know you through Jesus Christ, make us alive to yourself through the work of your Holy Spirit. We don't even know what it is we're asking for when uh, we pray that you would lift us up out of the mire of the deadness of our hearts that You would reveal to us the great love with which You've loved us in Jesus Christ. We don't even know what it is that we're asking to see when we ask that You would reveal Yourself to us, except that You have told us in the gospel of Jesus Christ what kind of God You are and what we should expect in our dealings with You and how to have a relationship with You. And we pray that You would make us, um, again, willing and eager to live in this reality, that you are full of grace and truth, that you have shown yourself to us for our relationship with you, and that you want that relationship with us. Um, In spite of ourselves, you want that relationship with us to last forever in a way that totally makes us new from the inside out. We pray that you would help us to uh, submit ourselves to your vision of reality, your revelation of yourself in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.